0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. I'm confident that frequent listeners to my book conversations have long since banished any cliched images of poets as prim and delicate, owlish people who live life at a remove from the rest of us. Good poems are infused with joy and anguish, pain, exhilaration, boredom, and heartbreak. Indeed, I like poet Major Jackson's description of poems as life rafts. But rarely do you find a poet's personal prose so intimately revealing and yet so historically sweeping. Tracy K. Smith's new memoir and meditation examines the nature of power, freedom, race, prayer, her parents' lives, her own drinking, what she calls the conundrum of history. The new book is titled To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. And Tracy K. Smith joins us from Boston. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. What do you think of that idea as of poems as life rafts? So says mm. Major
1: Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I think he nails it. I think for me, poetry offered to keep me afloat in a world that felt fast and overwhelming and that I wanted desperately to be able to understand. I always think of poems as as vehicles that slow us down so that we can take things in Feel our feelings and reflect properly, um, and I think that's what poems help me to do.
0: Yeah, you know, I I want to remind readers. Maybe they don't need this, but I still hear people say, "Oh, I don't really have time for poetry." That you know, I'd have to, I'd have to really focus and spend time contemplating it. I, I think people still don't think that poetry can be incorporated into your everyday life, that it's not this rarefied place that you go for specific meditation. Maybe you'll say something about that. I remember hmm. I remember in one of our previous conversations you talking about taking poetry into places where people thought poetry wasn't for them.
1: Yeah. I very strongly believe that we are all perfectly equipped to experience and enjoy poetry and one thing that makes us doubt that um, has to do with the questions that were often asked you know what is the poet trying to say what does the poem mean um, but if we can get around that vocabulary we can talk about what we notice what the poem causes us to remember or to wonder or to doubt And those are really fruitful starting points. You can go some distance on that alone. And that's one of the things that I sought to do during my terms as Poet Laureate, having conversations with people with no preparation about poems that spoke about life, about loss, grief, hope, love, and so much came into the room with us. So much was remembered and shared. It became this really beautiful, generative space. And I feel like if we could get around the anxiety, we could live in that space, or we could at least spend more time there together.
0: Why do you think people lay a frame of what did the poet mean? As if you can <laughs> you can kind of decode... Uh, the poem if you only had, you know, the right combination in a way that you don't hear as often with, certainly not with nonfiction, and you don't hear it as often with fiction. What happened that so many of us once, and I hope this is fading, but so many of us once approached this idea that there is one way to understand a poem, and it's complicated.
1: Yeah, honestly, I think it has to do with testing. (laughs) I think it has to do really? with um, I think it has to do with the ways that students are asked what um, an image, but it's often called a symbol, um, contains what it means, what it hides, and poems are made to appear like puzzles, um, like a poet is 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 riddling you in a way. When really, I think poets are trying to lay it all out and asking everything to be useful and to exert some sort of emotional um, information that a reader can feel, even without necessarily understanding where it comes from. Um, I think it's changing, certainly. And that has to do with the fact that so many poets are teaching poetry, and so many teachers are becoming excited about drawing poets into their classes to talk with students about how poems are made, what they come from, what they're in dialogue with. You know,
0: you just use the phrase, um, lay it all out. And I think that's what I was suggesting in the introduction about how, how candid and open this um,
1: memoir.
0: Is it right to call it a memoir? the the, to free I think it is what what do you call it
1: I fought that (laughs) I fought that designation (laughs) for a long time while I was writing certainly but um, to step back and look at what I had written I said of course this is me making sense of America through my life and me making sense of my life through America Um, and the me and the my I hope bleeds out into an in us in, in many different directions.
0: Mm-hmm. So so I guess I'm suggesting that you've really laid it all out <laughs> as, you, <laughs> as you say the good poetry does. Um, and, and I'm wondering how one prepares for that. Were you into it when you realized what you were doing? Did you conceive of it as, you know, as candid as, as it would be?
1: Well, as with poems, um, this prose was really a matter of me talking to myself and trying to have a hard conversation with myself. And it doesn't make sense if that's the aim to hide anything. <laughs> um, and so I started thinking about where those areas of density are, you know, what, um, What questions, what worries I hold and what they seem to connect to or what they connect me to. Um, One place that felt very necessary for me to go, um, but that maybe if I'd given it a lot of thought would have been a little bit fearsome, was sobriety. Thinking about my Mm. relationship with alcohol, what it helped me to ignore, deny, and um, what getting sober might mean not just in terms of one person and their relationship to substance, but in terms of a collective of people, like a nation and our relationship to accountability. Um, I was just trying to be resourceful. I feel like we're in a time where so much is at stake, so much seems to be vanishing or wobbling in a new way, and um I was just trying to grab as much as I could and see if I could trust it to help me get clarity.
0: you wrote about th- the excerpt um, that went into an op ed in the Washington Post was about your sobriety i I guess i I had already read your book when I saw that op ed um, Tell me about realizing that this was going to be very public and <laughs> maybe people that don't know you through your work or your poet laureate tenure this is their way into knowing you
1: hmm. yeah that's a that's a question or a proposition that might have <laughs> might have silenced me a little bit so I'm glad I didn't approach it <laughs> from the outset but um There were years when I was thinking about changing my relationship to alcohol. I don't think many people who know me really, really well would have said, oh, she's an alcoholic. But I knew that there was something that I was seeking to shake every time I would, you know, pour a glass of wine. Something I was seeking to just put a little distance uh, between myself and it. And there were years when I thought, one day I'm probably going to have to stop this. One day maybe I'll grow out of this. One day maybe I'll know how to quit. And um, that day took a long time in coming. I have other friends who um, quit drinking. And when I learned that, sometimes I would think, okay, that's one person I, I trust, I like, I think is fun, <laughs> who doesn't do this thing that I feel like I have to do. But it was it it was bringing it into dialogue with parenthood, bringing it into dialogue with the world and the forms of clarity that I think are necessary in order to to move mindfully and maybe even um, with a capacity to help. Um, that was a vocabulary that felt somehow like it needed to touch this story about me. And wine and and longing for a kind of freedom that was receding into the rear view for me, you
0: know it 's interesting that you at one point when you were still drinking, you thought i 'll grow out of this as if mm-hmm. you know as if hanging on to that or participating that in that was still telling yourself that you were young and you know you were mm-hmm. you were living a kind of what un- in some ways unaccountable life even though you weren't yeah right
1: <laughs> three kids <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots of students and responsibility um it's funny when i think about that 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 myth of youthfulness um and then the myth that says oh everything can be fixed don't worry there's a a point down the line when we'll get down to brass tacks it makes me think a lot about how we call America a young nation. And mm. I feel like there's a connection between the denial of a of a drinker <laughs> and a nation that's got a history that's demanding to be dealt with and put right.
0: The book is reflecting on the history of America and the history of your family and your own history. And you've written something so interesting about history that as I, as I read it a couple times, it sounded in a way like a poem to me. History arrives to remind us where and by whom our better efforts are sorely required. History arrives, better to accept that it is never gone despite our insistence to file much of it safely away, out of sight and mind. You were alluding to that, I think, a moment ago. Will you reflect more on that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, my, um, sort almost like the imaginary geography that I've always held in thinking about the past um, is that, it you know, it's back there in the distance and we're moving forward, away from it. Um, and that's often what's brought into Conversation or debate when we start, especially when we start talking about history of race, um, racial hierarchy, um, history of enslavement, and questions perhaps of reparations. You know, like that was centuries ago. Um, it's behind us. We need to deal with where we are now and keep on moving forward. And so there's like a line drawn that that we're discouraged from from trying to to go back toward. Um, but when I really began to think about it, um, history feels like it's with us, like it's upon us. Some of the questions about um, worth, uh, power, our, our sense of regard across lines of difference, our notions, unconscious notions about who we can trust, about who is deserving, about who... Who is most free um most uncontestably free in this country? I think those questions are informed by a version of history um, that we absorb, that we're initiated into. But I like this idea that history's keeping pace with us and if it came first, it's probably a little bit farther along. It's looking back at us to say, I know better now. And and why don't you? I like the challenge of that, and I like that it urges or insists that um, we're accountable not only to the present but to the past, (laughs) as though our ancestors are here saying, let's get this job finished. And by our ancestors, I don't just mean mine, (laughs) I mean everyone's, who maybe with time have attained a new sense of clarity or a different relationship with truth. Yeah this is the conundrum
0: that you write about and you say the conundrum of history is that we think it is behind us but if it came first doesn't that mean it should be up ahead turning back now and again to see if we are keeping up I love that image um but I but I think um fear and mythology and you know, that sense that there is something so exceptional about America, and if we really let history guide us and challenge us, something will chip away from that idea of exceptionalism. What do you think it is that prevents Americans from being open and receptive to the truth of history?
1: Mm. Well, I think it might have to do with the worry that there's something that can be lost or that there's something that's going to have to be given back. Um, Mm. The question of what we owe history really became visceral for me when I started looking looking through the archive at images. I, I have some images of my ancestors, but not a whole lot. And so I started looking at other people from their time period, people who would have occupied um, similar, um, you know, like jobs or, or who would have made similar choices. I started looking at photographs of young black men who served in World War I, same time that my father's father was enlisted, or World War II when my father's oldest brothers were in the army. And I saw hope. And I know that hope is attached to, you know, wanting to join in and fight for freedom and democracy abroad and also prove that they were worthy of freedom and full citizenship at home. Um, I saw those faces and I saw their fear as well. And I just imagined that there were dreams in there. And there were so many stories that I could imagine pieces of and and many more that, you know, will elude me. But it was those tender human faces that made me think, oh, my God, we owe these young men something wherever they are. And that made this notion of courage feel a little bit like exciting to me. I wanted to gather up some of those images, which I included in the book, so readers too could say, these are strangers to me, but their living somehow reaches through to captivate me. Um, And I wonder if that kind of a willing gaze is something we can practice enough so that our memory or imagination of other periods, what was at stake, might grow a little bit. And also so that our ability to look across the table, <laughs> across the subway car, at somebody here and now might also grow. And we can say, oh, there's, there's a lot going on in there. And there's something I want to contribute to. There's something I, I'm essential to if I, can, if I can let myself believe that's, um, that's possible.
0: You've, um, you've included, as, y- as you noted photographs of people that you found. Which archives did you find these in? Just in different educational Uh, institutions? In different places,
1: but most of those um, military photos come from the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. A lot of people donated family archives. You know, ancestors, fathers, grandparents who served in the war earned medals and had correspondence. Um, They've offered up this You know, treasure trove to the larger history. And I think that's a gesture in a way that's parallel to that that their ancestors were making and saying, I want to serve. I want my um, effort to help define this country.
0: So you do not know the family of Corporal Lawrence Leslie McVeigh, even though there are two photographs no, of him in the book. Yeah, these are remarkable photographs, Tracy. Wow, They're so um,
1: powerful.
0: They are. I've got your book open to this first photograph. Would you describe it?
1: Yeah, it's a photo from uh, 1914, perhaps, or sometime um, up until 1918. Um, and he's standing in his army uniform, um, that tunic collar coat with buttons um, and the breeches, those knee-length trousers. He's got a sword at his side, a short sword in a in a holder or scabbard. And he's looking. He's looking toward the camera with a sense of certainty. And I read in his mouth and his eyebrows, Vulnerability as well. I see him as a very, very young man. And the, there's this gesture um, that his hand is making. He's holding. He's he's kind of like straddling that sword with his index and middle mm-hmm. finger. And in my mind, I read that as, you know, there's an acquaintance that he has with this implement. Um, there's something that he's... Um, He's been given as a task, and there's there's some sort of um, knowledge that sits between him and it. Um, I know that um, he fought in one of the deciding battles in um, the war. He was in a combat unit, which was unusual for African-American soldiers. There weren't as many combat units for blacks as there were labor units um, and part of this had to do with stereotypes about how courageous or cowardly, how um, you know industrious or shiftless black people were. Um, part of it had to do with giving black men weapons and, and what the American imagination had been trained to fear about such a thing. Nevertheless, they were needed, and so he and his um, unit, which was called the Harlem Hellfighters um, in France were placed under French um, control or command, and that had to do with racial tensions in the US um, military. Um, Black soldiers were fighting um, on the front lines, and then they would also find themselves having to deal with challenges or violence um, from within, you know, their compatriots um, because of the what I imagine or what I assert as the racial war that has been going on in the American imagination uh, for, for centuries. So McVeigh is a hero. He earned the French Victory Medal, um, which is this beautiful medal that has, you know, winged victory on the front, In fact, she's standing uh, with a scabbard at her side on on the metal in which she appears um, in a way that's really similar to how McVeigh looks in this image. But he came back to America like other veterans, and he was shuffled back into those racial hierarchies that we live with even now. And um, I think necessity um, took over from this sense of being a, national hero. And I think that transfer happened really quickly for McVeigh and others. Um, so in some ways, holding these images up, saying this is part of our national history, this life, these sacrifices, and this hope belongs to all of us. And and um, saying, we've got to study it. We have to learn to recognize it, because there's still doubt. <laughs> there's still doubt in this imagination that we consent to, even without without realizing it.
0: Yeah, in the upper right hand corner of this photograph is is the word hero and then you flip yeah. the page and there's this wonderful photograph of the same man. He's sitting on a beach in a what looks like a very old fashioned um, swimsuit costume and his hands are outstretched and somebody has written daddy on the bottom of that. And there's a whole big life in between those two pictures. And yet Mm -hmm. I want to read this because you've, you've talked about it, but I want our listeners to hear this again. You write, how long would it have lasted the feeling of being deemed a hero, indispensable to the fate of his nation, how soon upon returning home would McVeigh and black veterans like him have been reminded that there is always a war brewing in America? You know, contrasting these, or putting these two photos a page apart with everything that they evoke, I think really brings home that idea that that I think you were talking about a few minutes ago. So much hope and belief, commitment. What did he know by the time that photograph was taken of him Mm. on the beach? What had he experienced?
1: Yeah. This is why there are so many different approaches to the archive that I think we, we really have to choose to take. You know, these pictures... Um, I think what we're both seeing is they they brim with life, <laughs> they brim with mm-hmm. messages that are still uncaptured, um, unheeded perhaps, and they defy the notion that this history has been safely and securely put away. It's simply not over. You can't look at this man on the beach. You know, reaching out toward what surely is the person who wrote Daddy on that picture and imagine that everything that he touched is done. It's just simply not. Should we say what happened to him? Yeah, I kind of want to read it. Okay. On September 30th, 1968, at age 71, Corporal Lawrence Leslie McVeigh, Sr. was attacked and beaten to death in a New York City park. History is here beside us when we consider such a fact. History, arriving to tell us this one thing more, about the centuries-long war in which countless have fallen, are falling still. History, imploring us to confront what has been hammered into us about which lives matter, about what it is that some are entitled to and others are expected to fight or even die for. History arrives to remind us where and by whom our better efforts are sorely required.
0: Tracy K. Smith reading from her new memoir, and Meditation, Uh, called To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation this morning with Tracy K. Smith. So I've wondered if you sense a greater desire in Americans to bear witness to the truth in all of its complexity. Or is there just... Are we living in a time when there's just more urging to do that, more voices calling for that, and there's still a lot of resistance to it?
1: (laughs) I guess yes and yes. (laughs) I I work with (laughs) college students. I work with 18 to 20-somethings who are really courageous and whose consciences are guiding them in almost every pursuit, you know, their, their academic work is invested in thinking about collectivity, thinking about the planet, thinking about our resources, thinking about ways of caring for and bolstering, you know, the most vulnerable among us. And we live in a world where there is a lot reminding us that there are alternatives to doing this kind of hard work. And here's one in my pocket, you know, buzzing or offering me um, Mm -hmm. the opportunity to just get some love and some likes and some followers really quickly in the middle of a day. Um, I think that these are two poles that we're tugged back and forth between. Um, But I don't think that the worry about whether it's possible to do hard work, is really capable of overwhelming those who are most motivated to do so. I I really don't. And I also will say that I don't think what I read as fear in others um, about doing Mm -hmm. that kind of hard accounting, I also really don't believe that that is capable of um, stifling uh, a generation that is fearless and boundless in their energy I think that there's, um, I think that there's a new vocabulary that's emerging and I'm, I feel very fortunate to be, um, in the midst of it because of the fact that I work with so many members of the, this, um, energized and conscience, um, driven generation.
0: What are they, what are they most interested in writing about? Are these poetry students primarily or, or any kind of creative writing?
1: I work mostly with students who are reading and writing poetry. And where I really get a sense of what they're thinking about is, is in their writing. So not all of my students, probably not even the majority of my students at this point, are English majors, although some are. Mm-hmm. But some are coming from vocabularies of history. Some are thinking about migration and studies of you know what urgencies people are fleeing and what urgencies they confront when they when they migrate from one um, one place to another. Some are thinking about the planet, about the ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, some are lawyers. Some are teachers. Um, some are thinking about you know medicine and, and investing in changing the standard of care for trans patients and others who are still vulnerable um, in, in the American, you know, imagination, um, certainly within many American institutions. And so these vocabularies make their way into their poems. They're not just writing poems about, um, you know, those topics we, we often think poetry is filled up exclusively with, like love or like, you know, grief or the changing of the seasons. They're thinking um, <laughs> they're thinking about justice.
0: You know, as I was reading your book, I I was going back through and um, listening to a podcast that Princeton historian Eddie Glaude put together about a History of America Have you have you caught this podcast yet By any chance? I haven't yet oh, No I haven't It's outstanding He uses this phrase A couple times in it Or maybe it's in the show notes About how uh, We in America Are Very committed To protecting our innocence I think he mm-hmm. means that As kind of what we've been talking about this morning don't let my image of what we are and who we are and then by extension who I am be sullied by having to face up to you know some of these truths about history and and a not very exceptional kind of America do you you think that do you think that phrase fits? That that's what we're doing, trying to protect our innocence in some ways.
1: Absolutely. You know, I know that Eddie Glaude is a scholar of James Baldwin, and I know that Baldwin has mm-hmm. talked about you know this insistence upon innocence as as a you know an innate uh, circumstance or trait um, in this country, um, and I think it's it's a great <laughs> it's a great construct. Because if you're innocent, it means that nothing has been done, even in your name, that you are accountable for. And yet, looking at history with clear eyes, tells us that all of us, no matter who we are, um, are in the position of of having um, benefited from acts that we ourselves would shun. And that's so hard to think about, right? It's also... The kind of courage that might allow more and more of us to get around the terror of letting letting this view of ourselves mm-hmm. go. It reminds me a little bit about uh, of what my students have to um, learn in, in starting to write poetry, or what any writer has to find new ways of of coming up against depending on, you know, how vulnerable they are to the material that they're invested in. And it's really simple. We have to become less and less afraid of more and more in order to make progress, in order to offer something that's useful to ourselves and others. And innocence um, is like a guardrail against Mm -hmm. fearlessness. But it's something I think we we can coax ourselves away from along with putting photographs of
0: people that you found in the archives, you've also put photographs of your own family, and you've done a lot of what thinking and reflection on the history of your family. There are facing pages on page 58 and 59 of Floyd and Wanda Smith at Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, 1964, and then Catherine Smith at Ernest Harmon Air Force Base Newfoundland Canada 1959 wonderful photographs would you would you tell us a little bit about unearthing your own family history mm-hmm. and what it revealed to you sure
1: i at first i thought i wouldn't include pictures of my own family and my editor said if you have them maybe they belong in this book as well Good. um and I guess I chose to offer them up in a way that's similar to how I described you know McVeigh's family um, offering these images of him. Um, this these are my people, but they're your people too. Can you get your head around that? You know that's mm-hmm. the proposition um the the this uh, you know this archive of of personal photos I think is making. Um, I love you know the image of my sister in the first photo on the left side of the, those pages standing. She's probably about um, seven years old uh, with my dad. And I think she's holding like a sandwich or something and some tinfoil. <laughs> I just <laughs> With a big that. smile on her face. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think, you know, we, we, we live with cameras in our pockets. We take all these pictures. Most of them now are, you know, pictures of ourselves or um, but these candid photos of, of um, uncurated, um, you know, like subjects, they tell us, I think, about, you know, these feelings that don't always make their way into vocabulary. My dad in that photo is looking off toward the, you know, left margin of that image. And I don't know, I, I feel like he's got a question on yeah. his face or maybe there's the, the beginning of a smile because i know my dad i know that what he's holding in his hand is a tobacco pouch which means he probably has a pipe in his hand that's like he's filling up as as he looks off in that that direction um and so i just think you know i think of what we juggle i think of what we carry he's also wearing a, an air force uniform um so i think of what we what we what we count among our commitments
0: mm-hmm. and then your mother if you'll describe that photograph. It's lovely.
1: Mm-hmm. She's sitting on, a, like, a front stoop. Um, I see, like, the paving stones leading up to this this stoop, so I imagine she's in front of our house. I wasn't born at that time, but the family house or someone else's in a 1950s dress, you know, sleeveless. She's got bracelets. She's got pumps on and... Um, her hair is done and I, I love what I read as just this intentional glamour mm. of that photo though it seems to be you know just an everyday kind of day um, there are no kids with her there's no you know backdrop um, and I feel I feel her as a young woman at that point she had two kids okay. and I think about you know what my parents held together <laughs> you know we've yeah the next the next year, um, or or soon after that, my my brother would be born. And my dad, I know, was traveling a lot for different assignments. Um, and there's this woman who's still holding on to a view of herself in a certain kind of uh, glamorous authority. You know, even on this scraggly lawn, <laughs> there might even be some old some snow, <laughs> something unmelted in part of the photograph. Um, it's funny because I think about this view of her and the way that she gracefully moved toward a different view of herself as as she had more and more children. And I think this image is also largely in my mind. As I imagine my own way towards sobriety, you know, holding on for me to a, a kind of beauty, glamour, and ultimately like freedom, uh something that sits just on the on the near side of of uh, responsibility, which is off you know kind of in the distance and um i i it took me a long time to try and claim. Um, the largeness that my mother for me embodies in this photograph to be an adult
0: the other thing I wondered about I just I imagined the moments that led up to that photograph I thought maybe someone said you look so beautiful today just we sit down there sit down real quick and Mm -hmm. let us take a picture You know how that happens, (laughs) right? Someone just notices that you're glowing on a given day. And that seems to be what your mother exudes there.
1: Mm, I love that. Yeah, I can imagine this photo traveling with my father, (laughs) you know, on on the next assignment that he was um, heading off toward.
0: I wondered if you'd read an excerpt, um, and this is about your mother and her faith and her belief yeah, of course.
1: When my mother struggled in any way, her strategy was she prayed. She whispered, bowed her head, and drew something around her that even in near silence grew louder than anything else in the room. Her sitting on one end of the couch in the afternoon while I read or watched TV became a center of gravity so profound I sometimes had to get up and leave. Not because she was seeking to be seen, but because the current that quickened and ran through her touched me. But when my father came home on Fridays, he put ice cubes in a glass and poured three fingers of scotch. He sat down in a chair and for a short time disappeared. I think about him and I think about her. No one would blink then or now at what he did. But her sitting there, the force of her praying, would have been something I hid. What wants us to disappear? Tracy K. Smith reading from
0: her new book To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. So, it sounds like you have come to a faith practice of your own i i guess i wondered in being introduced to your mother and her reverence for prayer how your own faith practice might be influenced by what you saw her doing and what she what she felt and maybe what
1: she told you about that yeah well prayer was something that my siblings and I were taught. And so it was something that I grew up doing. If I was afraid, if I had a test, if there was a problem I was trying to figure out, my mother would sit down with me and pray and she would encourage me, you know, to use that as a resource. Um, And I did and I have. Um, My spiritual practice has also changed a lot from what it was when I was living with my parents I would describe now that practice as being grounded in meditation Um, I always thought meditation was a kind of like silence and erasing of everything in your mind and I thought oh I could never do that Um, but then I started to trust that maybe there might be other ways of approaching that kind of Centering. And so I've begun sitting down, and in a way that's not so very different from prayer, saying, who is here? Who is willing to help me right now? And what used to feel like a one-sided set of pleas going out into, you know, the universe, now, in the best of times, feels like a kind of conversation um sometimes i imagine it has to be merely with myself sometimes you know the um god loving person that i've been raised to be trust that god is there but often oftener now i feel like there are ancestors who say i'm here have you thought of this hmm. or um Guides, perhaps that I I wouldn't know to name, who offer me a kind of what I think of as a counter logic, a different mental picture of what I'm dealing with, of what we are in as humans in this time. And it's become so stabilizing that I really just had to write about it. I really just have to talk about it because, again... There's so much in our culture that instills us with fear, with the sense that we're small in the face of these indomitable forces. And I love that there's something at hand that's so effortless that can just come near us with um, another kind of message.
0: You know, the way you said that, I really had to talk about it sounds like there was a time when you were reluctant you didn't think you would want to talk about it more openly and why would that be
1: the word that we use right now colloquially to talk about why i was afraid to talk about my meditative dialogue is (laughs) woo-woo. <laughs> Have you heard
0: that? Like, of course. Oh, it's just really
1: woo-woo. <laughs> like, it's out there. Um, not grounded in reality. And, you know, I, I, um, I was nervous to sort of be woo-woo. <laughs> um, but I've found that a lot of people are invested in similar vocabularies or their own versions for something that is not I'm not going to say woo-woo anymore, but what I think of it now is um, what I think of it as is a counter logic, mm-hmm. something that defies, um, you know, the material world as we've been taught to accept it. And um, it's really exciting. It's almost like you can open a portal <laughs> in a conversation and suddenly you and, and this friend that you've known for a long time um, are being honest about this other place that you believe you have access to. Um And I feel like it's a resource that we can find a way to use. And maybe it's best use for some is merely a source of like courage. (laughs) Maybe it's a way of like rethinking things and finding, um, better strategies. Maybe it's a chastening, um, a chastening force that says, you know better and, Here's how you know better. Here's what you can do to learn better. Um, but again, I just feel like what we're handed, what we're encouraged to turn to when we're worried, when we're lonely, I feel like it's, you know, it's rooted in, it's rooted in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. It's driven by traffic, by web traffic, by advertisers, by algorithms of who will look at this thing. For the longest amount of time, and share it with the most people, and those those are those are counter logics that I um, I'm you know susceptible to, but that I don't think are going to take me where I want to go. You know, and I think other people might feel a similar way.
0: You know, I guess I hope that in the same way as we discussed at the beginning of the conversation, the people have become more accepting, understanding, interested in the way that poetry can be integrated into your everyday experience, that people feel that way about meditation. I mean, I don't hear that many people today, maybe these are just my circles, pretending like there isn't something um, valuable or at least worth some interrogation about meditation. I hear it come up much more often than than mm-hmm. probably in my parents' lifetime. So let's just banish woo woo, should we? <laughs> <laughs> As a description, oh, good. Of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodbye, woo <woo-woo>.
1: woo. <laughs> you know, I think I think you're absolutely right, and part of it has to do with you know our desperation to stabilize our, our, the state of our mental health as yeah. a nation, yeah. maybe as a, as a species. Um, and maybe that's, you know, if you're, if you're desperate enough for help, you'll take it. Um, and maybe that, that has to do with where we are. You know, a lot of us are suffering. The violence in our culture, the violence that makes us fearful is something that we're all susceptible to. And I think it's also a symptom of something that we're all feeling in different ways and to different degrees, a kind of worry, a kind of fear, a kind of um, unrest and powerlessness. And we need something uh, with which to face those feelings, which are part of the atmosphere we live in, mm. a part of the atmosphere that we, we make. You know, with our choices,
0: this seems like a perfect moment to close our conversation with some leontine Dupree. I thought we could listen to one more oh, sunny okay. day. How does that sound? Beautiful, <laughs> That's perfect. Tracy, thank you so much for the conversation.
1: Thank you. What a what a joy. One more. One more.